We'll hear argument now in number 91-119, the Wisconsin Department of Revenue versus William Wrigley, Jr. Company. Uh, Mr. Criron, is it? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Criron, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the question presented in this case is whether, for the six-year period at issue, the respondent engaged in activities other than those expressly permitted by Public Law 86-272, thereby forfeiting the limited immunity from state taxation measured by income, which is accorded by that statute. It is Wisconsin's position that the respondent did engage in activities other than those expressly permitted, that its assessment covering that period is valid, and that the judgment of the Wisconsin Supreme Court should therefore be reversed. This case arose as a result of a franchise tax assessment made by the Wisconsin Department of Revenue against the William Wrigley Jr. Company, which is the largest manufacturer of chewing gum in the world. The franchise tax is a fairly apportioned tax imposed only upon income attributable to business activities within Wisconsin. During these years, Wrigley's Wisconsin sales ranged from $2.8 million to $4.4 million, while its total sales ranged from $140 million to $230 million. The tax itself, exclusive of interest, is slightly in excess of $120,000, an amount which is not in dispute. The Wisconsin Supreme Court reversed the Wisconsin Tax Appeals Commission solely on the legal question of how it construed the provisions of Public Law 86-272 and agreed with the construction of that statute that Wrigley continues to advocate here. Was that a unanimous opinion? Yes, it was. This Court's decision in Hubline established two firm tenets for construing Public Law 86-272. First, Congress must speak clearly when it chooses to abridge the state's taxing powers, which of course are fundamental to their very existence. If Congress does not speak clearly, ambiguous terms in the statute will be construed in favor of the pre-existing authority to tax. Second, clarity that would remove uncertainty was Congress' primary goal in enacting Public Law 86-272. While any of the activities listed by the Wisconsin Tax Appeals Commission would probably be sufficient to support taxation under the principles set forth by the court in Hubline, the major activities engaged in by Wrigley, which we claim exceeded those listed in the statute, are maintaining stocks of goods in rented warehouse space in Wisconsin and in its employees' homes in Wisconsin, replacing stale or damaged product from that stock of goods, direct agency stock check sales and direct delivery of product from that stock of goods, and personnel management and similar activities engaged in by Wrigley's resident regional manager, which did not involve any customer participation. How long does it take for gum uh, to get stale? What's its shelf life? Uh, I, I do not know. It's six months. <coughs> I, I, I should not chew gum. 
The statute at issue is a minimum activity statute. It was enacted to assure continued entry by small businesses into new markets so that they could compete with large multi-state corporations like Wrigley that had already established themselves in those markets. Under the statute, a seller of tangible personal property is permitted to engage in three activities if they originate outside the taxing state. It may approve orders, it may fill orders, and it may deliver goods to the customer. Wrigley shipped fresh gum carried on its books as inventory to a warehouse and to its employees' homes in Wisconsin. That gum was not shipped to the customer, and most of it remained in storage at these locations. Once that gum was in Wisconsin, it is our position that it became a stock of goods within the state. That was the only instance, wasn't it? The only shipment of goods other than to the customer was to the warehouse and to its employees' homes, yes. That's the only warehousing instance that the record discloses? Yes. But that instance uh, continued through all six of the tax years at issue. It wasn't much of a warehousing, was it? No, it was, uh, they rented warehouse space, but uh, gum isn't, uh, and, and the space was how not. How large a space? Excuse me? How large a space? I do not know how large the space was, but I believe the record indicates that uh, during this time period, uh, the annual cost was no more than $300 a month. When you say they did, I thought it was one salesman did, right? Did, do, do we know that, that other officers of the company knew about that? Yes, the, the record clearly reflects that uh, the, uh, the regional manager uh, in 1973 mm. uh, obtained permission from Wrigley to rent the warehouse and was assured by Wrigley that he would, in fact, be reimbursed uh, for those warehouse costs. Then uh, when uh, an employee was finally hired and uh, the gum, he lived in an apartment and the stock of gum would not fit within his apartment, uh, he continued that arrangement and he also was assured by Wrigley that he would be reimbursed for those costs. So I don't, uh, I don't think Wrigley can say that it, it did not approve of this particular activity. Uh, once the gum was, was uh, in these uh, in-state locations, uh, Wrigley's uh, sales representatives would use that gum, uh, travel around uh, two dealer locations, and would uh, fill display stands uh, at the retailer's location. If, if the retailer did not have the uh, correct sizes uh, of product, the sales representative would swap product with the retailer and place the different sizes of product uh, in the display stand. It's our position that that activity constituted delivery of goods from within the state. On occasion, approximately uh, once per month per sales representative, the retailer uh, would not have the correct size of product. The uh, Sales representative could not do the necessary product swapping, and the sales representative would then uh, provide gum to the retailer through a device known as an agency stock check. The way that would work was that the uh, stock check would be given to the retailer as a receipt. The, the wholesaler would bill the retailer, and Wrigley would then bill the wholesaler.
Since billing did occur in these situations, it's our position that a sale did take place. Therefore, both approval and delivery of these agency stock check transactions occurred in Wisconsin. The plain and unambiguous meaning of the statutory terminology prohibits this product swapping and this, these agency stock check transactions. The statute does permit certain business activity within a state that would otherwise have jurisdiction to tax. But its language immediately limits the phrase business activity in such a way that the only activity of that kind that may originate within the state must constitute solicitation of orders. The plain and unambiguous meaning of the term only is that nothing else may occur. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court's decision, with which Wrigley appears to agree in every respect, uh, holds that the ordinary and accepted meaning of the term solicit is to make a plea. The ordinary and accepted meaning of the term solicitation of orders, therefore, is simply requesting orders. Even if solicitation were determined to be an ambiguous term, its possible meanings can be placed on a spectrum. At one end, simply requesting and receiving orders within the state would be permissible, and any other activity would result in payment of a fairly apportioned tax. At the other end of that spectrum, lease or ownership of physical facilities or the presence of a stock of goods would be prohibited, and every other activity conducted within a state which would otherwise have jurisdiction to tax would nevertheless be tax-exempt. Every presumption in Hubline is in favor of that end of the spectrum where only requesting orders is permissible. Under the court's decision in that case, Wrigley's burden to establish that the court should move away from that end of the spectrum any distance at all is enormous. Yet Wrigley's redefinition of the term solicitation to include what it claims are incidental activities is at the exact opposite end of the spectrum from its ordinary and accepted meaning. Well, Mr. Kern, I think Wrigley's in their brief say that uh, even you, your side, the state, doesn't insist that it be only solicitation, only would you like to buy, period, that even you can see there may be some incidental conversation and so forth in connection with that. They say you don't really limit it to the actual uh, narrowest meaning you could either. Uh, we, uh, with the Wisconsin Department of Revenue, uh, did not apply the, the narrowest test that is applied in some states, but uh, it is our position that uh, the activity must be part and parcel of the sales pitch. Uh, that may be sli a slightly uh, different definition than saying all you can do is ask for the order. But uh, how, about, how about restocking the, the gum at the same, you know, on the same call that you ask them to buy some more? It's, it's our position that you can't do that. That serves another purpose. It, it serves a quality control purpose of the company which is other than solicitation. Well, it could be seen as part of the overall solicitation, saying this is the kind of service that we routinely perform, and therefore you ought to deal with us. 
Well, the, the statute, first of all, only protects the sale of tangible personal property. It, it does not protect the provision of services. Uh, no, of course, but it's the sale that we're talking about uh, that would be the measure of the tax. But presumably, uh, do you take the position that nothing that enhances the chances of making the sale can be uh, done and fall within the exemption? Uh, not at all. We, we take the position that uh, if, if the activity is part and parcel of, inextricably bound, whatever terminology uh, along those lines you choose to use, uh, part of the sales pitch itself, that uh, the activity is permissible. Uh, the pre-sale, post-sale test, I think, uh, is useful in, uh, in regard to the replacement of, of damaged goods because I think what that test is trying to get at is that you can't do more uh, simply because uh, the first sale or many sales have taken place. Uh, the first time you approach the customer uh, who had never done business with you before, uh, you would not be in a position to replace damaged goods, uh, which I think indicates that that, that, that activity is something that, that is beyond uh, the sales pitch itself. Mr. Creron, suppose, uh, suppose you have a, a salesman uh, uh, who, who makes his, uh, his presentation to the customer, the customer buys some uh, gum, and, and then the customer says, but I'll, I'm telling you now, I'm not going to place another order unless you forward to the company and support these complaints that I have about, about the company, about the last shipment. Now, I want you to do that for me. And he says, okay, I'll do it. And he does it. He writes to the company and supports the customer's uh, complaints. Um, is, that, is that activity? I don't see how that comes within your definition. That would render the company liable? Uh, I, d I don't believe that activity does uh, come within our definition. I don't believe uh, complaint handling is something that would occur uh, the first time you approach the customer, so that, that activity does not fit within our definition. Meaning that, that it renders the company taxable? Yes. But you, uh, surely solicitation includes not just the first time you approach the company, but uh, approaches thereafter to keep their sales going. Absolutely. Uh, you, you can do the same things uh, the second time, the third time, uh, and every and other time. And if you're back the third time and the customer says, I've really got these complaints about the first two batches that I bought, forward them to the, to the manufacturer, the salesman cannot do that without going beyond solicitation, in your view. Again, it's our position that's a quality control uh, uh, service and that that is, that is not part and parcel of the sales pitch. May I ask about the uh, storage? How long this one salesman wasn't rented the space for a while and then used to come? And the, the answer of the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court, as I remember, was it was de minimis that if it had been a routine, a major part of the, you know, regular storage and stuff that's delivered would be different. Do you recognize any de minimis exception? And if you don't, or if you do, why doesn't this come within it? Uh, we absolutely do not recognize any de minimis exception. We feel that that's inconsistent with the word only that Congress used in this particular statute. Uh, if you look in the, in the legislative history, uh, Senator Byrd, the sponsor of the bill, uh, in the congressional record at 16355 uh, says that, that the sale of a single sample within the state would result in a forfeiture of immunity under the bill. Uh, it seems that uh, if you're going to apply that logic 
to uh, warehouse rental, uh, the rental of a single warehouse or a small amount of warehouse space would also result in a forfeiture of immunity under the, under the statute. Maybe Senator Byrd was wrong. Um, he may have been, but if we look simply to the unambiguous language itself, Byrd. Excuse me? Senator Byrd. But, but all, that, all that the statute says is that, that only these activities. And, well, and uh, whenever you have a de minimis exception from anything, it's a de minimis exception from some categorical prescription. Otherwise, you wouldn't need a de minimis exception. You'd have a regular exception. Well, so the, all, all you say is this is categorical, but every prescription is categorical, and you have de minimis exceptions from all prescriptions, well, almost all anyway. The plain and unambiguous meaning of the term only means that, in our, it's our position anyway, that Congress did not want a de minimis exception with respect to this particular statute. You do have, uh, in various aspects of the law, de minimis exemptions created, but I have not seen one created with respect to a taxing statute that uses the word only. I don't know another taxing statute that uses the word only, do you? Um, perhaps that's all the more well, reason why, why this statute should not be construed to have a de minimis exemption. <laughs> uh, what if the salesman is seeking new customers and he, and he, uh, it's, uh, he, he wants some samples? He, to, uh, he says, here's some great Wrigley gum. Why don't you uh, try it out for a week? See if you can sell it. So he gives them a, a few samples. Uh, and uh, hoping that he that he'll get an order next week, and he does. The guy says, uh, "Gee, that's pretty good gum. Sells well." Uh, and he, if, if he ha if he has to have samples uh, at his house or in a warehouse, is that is that too much? Uh, if if he gives the the a prospective customer samples, it would be our position that that would be permissible because it has no other purpose other than solicitation of orders. If you rent a warehouse uh, for a bunch of samples... Well, uh, you got to put them somewhere, and your wife doesn't like them in your house. <laughs> so uh, what are you going to do? You, you go to some locker somewhere and... Well... Uh, now, is that... Is, you're out of bounds then? Well, first of all, that, that's not what happened here. I mean, most of this gum was used to replace product, but uh, it's what is used to re replace stale product. Uh, very little of it was used as, as free samples. But uh, the act of renting the warehouse itself—it's uh, our position—would not be solicitation. Uh, you cannot have uh, rental of a warehouse full of samples. And if you look at at the bills, you that, can have a locker in a two feet square. If you're if you're uh, renting physical plant within the state, it's our position that that, that is not permissible within the unambiguous language of the statute. Can you can you pay a taxi cab to carry these samples? I mean, let's say a taxi cab charges for suitcases, uh, and you put the samples of suitcases in the trunk of the cab to to show it. That's out too. No, yeah, absolutely, you can do that. Uh, you, well, why can you do? Why is that any different from storing the samples? I mean, it seems to me everything that you would reasonably be expected to do with samples ought to be okay if the samples are, if giving the samples are okay. Otherwise, that's silliness. He said, well, you can give them samples, but you can't carry it in a cab. I, I didn't say that you couldn't carry it. I know you didn't, but you ought to if you're going to say you can't put it in a locker. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm saying you can't put it in a warehouse, which is, which is what happened here. 
Can you engage in activities to stimulate sales, since the ultimate purpose of doing that is, of course, to stimulate orders? You can engage in uh, the sales pitch itself. If, if, if by that you mean that uh, is any activity which would generate additional profits uh, permissible, uh, we take the position that that activity uh, is not uh, uh, allowed under the unambiguous language of the statute. If the salesman arrives for the first time at a store and says, we'll give you all of these posters to display in the store that advertise the virtues of the gum, the pictures of the twins, and so on, uh, is that impermissible? No, I believe you can do that. I don't see what other purpose that activity would have or what that, that activity would uh, be inextricably bound up in the sales pitch itself. What about, what about um, uh, renting newspaper space for advertising in local papers or, or um, renting radio time? Is that like the posters? Uh, if the term solicitation uh, is determined uh, to uh, is, is given its ordinary and accepted meaning, then I believe that would be permissible. What about a warehouse to store the posters in? I, I don't. Again, I don't think you can do that. Uh, the the bills that were that did not pass uh, indicated that if you had uh, a warehouse space uh, uh, or anything of that nature within the state, that those activities were not permissible. So the the act of the cab's okay. I mean, you, if hey, you could just have them driven around constantly, you'll be all right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably an unlikely scenario, yeah, but, uh, tra you know, transportation to and from the customer is, is a necessary uh, uh, consequence of solicitation. There's a, there's a suggestion in the respondent's brief that we take the position that you can't even drive away from the customer in your automobile, that you have to walk home, and that's absolutely not true. Haven't you slipped pretty far down the slope when you let the, the when you let the salesman go out and start uh, renting or buying radio time and, and uh, taking out newspaper ads? In the case of giving him the posters, you can say, well, that is he's he's only dealing with the person from whom he wants to solicit the order. But when you let him start going out to address the world in general, that is no longer true. And and and. Why, why, do, why, on your view, doesn't that cross the line from what is integrally related to an entirely separate activity and therefore subject to tax? Well, I, I don't know if I would uh, look at it in those terms. If, if there's a problem with advertising, it would be, I think, that the statute only allows solicitation of the customer and the customer's customer. And uh, advertising... Uh, might be construed as what would be called third-tier solicitation, where you're soliciting... I, I think that's what I was assuming in my question. You know, that's why I, your answer that, surprised me so much. That, that, is, a, that is a problem. Uh, you, uh, your first question, I assume, just asked about, uh, is advertising solicitation, not whether advertising was permitted under this particular statute? Apparently, I misunderstood your first question. I, I probably wasn't yeah. clear. In any case, you're receding from the answer that I thought you were giving. Well, I think he is, yes. Of course, what if the customer says, uh, gosh, I'll order a lot of this gum, but uh, how do I know I can sell it? Will you agree to take a space in the Denver Post and help me sell this gum? He says, sure. Take it to make it the Milwaukee Journal. <laughs> That's all right, too. Uh, so, I mean, his order, his order is conditioned on your agreeing to take out the ad. And you say, sure. And he gives you an order. Well, if, 
if if the ad does in fact involve uh, you know, third tier solicitation, which is I take it your question uh, assumes that, then I mean you can't do it simply because the customer. Uh, imposes it as a condition. So he can't do that and and stay within the statute? I don't think so. All right. Well, you're the Attorney General. Well, what what if Wrigley simply uh, advertises over WGM and WBB? Are those television stations as well as railroads, as well as radio stations in Chicago? Whatever the corresponding television stations are in Chicago. Uh, and those are beamed into Wisconsin. Uh, does that render him? Uh, does that render Wrigley liable? Again, with with advertising, you have a difficult problem. Uh, we're we're not relying on the advertising that that occurred in this case, but uh, it it depends, I think, under the statute on what audience you're reaching. Uh, if you're reaching the customer or the customer's customer, you can do it. I, what's a customer's customer? I, I don't understand what you mean. Well, uh, in, in wholesalers or retailers? Is that what you're talking about? Right. Okay, but not the consumer. Well, you see, in this case, the the problem with uh, with that is, and why advertising really is a difficult issue here, and why we're not relying on it, is uh, in this case, some retailers were Wrigley's customers. So you're reaching a mixed audience with the advertising. I, I don't know why you why you concede customer's customer. I would think the line would would end at customer. Um, I, I believe Section A2, uh, which refers to missionary activities, does permit solicitation of the customer's customer. Well, if, uh, if the advertising, if, if just advertising in the state from out of state uh, would give you jurisdiction to tax, uh, why, uh, you would just be home free, and so would every other state, because they're n- national advertising. Well, th- that's, that's the next case. Uh, w- uh, well, <laughs> Jurisdiction to tax. Oh, not if you lose this one. <laughs> <laughs> Jurisdiction to tax is present in this case. We're not claiming, uh, and it's not an issue in this case, that advertising itself creates jurisdiction to tax. Question is, if there is otherwise jurisdiction to tax, what activities uh, are exempt solicitation? Um, in conclusion, uh, it's our position that the Wisconsin. Uh, the Can I, I just ask one other little, maybe this is stupid, but supposing we could identify the percentage of, of Wrigley's business that was done in the ways that you say established uh, something more than solicitation in the state. Would that, in your view, entitle Wisconsin to tax the portion of their income attributable to those activities, or would it then allow you to tax all the income they've gotten from everything else they've done? Uh, it's our position that it's an all-or-nothing statute. Once you engage in activities uh, beyond those expressly permitted by the statute, you're taxable for the whole tax year. Has anybody passed? Have courts passed on that particular point I've raised? Uh, I See, the text of the statute, I think, is somewhat ambiguous on that point. Sure I'm not aware of any court which has taken a contrary position and required some kind of a percentage apportionment based on what activities are solicitation and what are not. If 99% of their sales and uh, solicitations were exempt under the statute, but they have 1% that 
that is generated by, an imp- by a taxable method, the, the whole 100 percent becomes taxable. Well, some, some courts ha- have uh, accepted the de minimis argument, but I'm not aware of any. It's either all, it's always an all or none proposition. As far as I know, there's no court that's, that's held to the contrary. Uh, in conclusion, we urge reversal of the judgment of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Thank you, Mr. Curran. Uh, Mr. Prettyman, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, General Creon has touched upon a number of activities that he says that we engaged in, and I'm going to deal with those in just a moment, but I thought it might be helpful in starting just to focus on some of the things that we didn't do in Wisconsin in an effort to comply with the statute. We, we were not, for example, licensed within the state. We didn't have a bank account there. We didn't invoke the jurisdiction of any Wisconsin court. We didn't own real estate or a manufacturing plant or a sales office or a warehouse. We didn't collect delinquent accounts or investigate credit worthiness or grant credit or handle complaints. Uh, we didn't approve or accept orders. We didn't hire a fire within the state. We didn't even have a, a listing in the phone book. And when the salesmen gave out cards, they How did you check credit? Pardon me? Didn't you even check credit? Illinois did. The office in, in uh, Wrigley office in Illinois did, but it was not done in Wisconsin. You mean they did it on the phone to Wisconsin? Well, the, the Wisconsin office, whenever a prospective customer came in, the name was forwarded to Illinois for a number of reasons, among them to make sure that they could pay their bills. And Wisconsin said... So they corresponded or used the telephone to check the credit? Yes. They would either send in a written uh, in To Wisconsin? No, to Illinois. Well, I, I know, but what would Illinois, how would Illinois check the credit? I have no idea how they check the credit. I, I suppose they, they communicated with somebody. Well, there's no evidence in this record... Well, you mean they just uh, sat in Illinois and said, gee, here's this name, and it must be good. <laughs> well, the... They must have written into Wisconsin. What this record reflects, Justice White, is that credit matters were handled out of Chicago. Yes, I know. (laughs) That's what the record (laughs) reflects. As I was about to say, the cards cards that the salesman gave out didn't even have a Wisconsin address or telephone number on it. I touch on that because we were making, obviously, an, an honest effort to comply with this statute. Now, General Creon has focused on the word solicitation, but I would remind you that that's not what the statute talks about. Statute talks about business activities within the state, which are the solicitation of orders. It's the business activities that we're trying to determine the meaning of here. I would further point out that he said that this statute abridged the state's taxing authority. In fact, This statute is an allocation statute because what you have here is all of Wrigley's uh, orders or business in Wisconsin is presently taxed in Illinois, 100% of it. So what this statute does is say that that is where it should be taxed. On the other hand, if Wisconsin was going to tax some of these um, um, activities, then under the so-called reverse nexus rule, Illinois would not tax so those particular activities. So th- this doesn't take power away from the states to tax. What it does is to allocate power between the states that can tax. Well, I, we th- I think it's an overstatement, Mr. Prima, to say it doesn't take power away from states to tax. 
Because in the absence of this statute, don't you think that Wisconsin would have a, uh, a better case for taxing? Than Absolutely. It? And in fact, I, I think we, we don't contest that there's nexus in this case. This is not a quill case. It has nothing to do with nexus. We would concede immediately that there's nexus to tax. What I meant by that was it isn't as if it was telling the states you cannot tax this activity. What it is is saying that Illinois can tax it, but Wisconsin can't. It allocates the power between the states. Now, um, General Creon, if I understood him, in answer to a question from uh, Justice Souter, conceded that dropping off uh, posters would be part of the business activities that was covered here. And he said, because that's inextricably bound up in the solicitation process, that is our case. That is our position. That everything that we did was either inextricably bound up in the solicitation process or it was of a de minimis nature. Now let me go to the four or five points that he mentioned that he thought went too far. And the first was what he called the agency stock <coughs> transfers. This was not a, the agency stock transfers. This, this is not a sale. There was no price involved, no billing, no money accepted, no invoice. What this was was really an internal check of the company to make sure there was no sale. Uh, and it was also de minimis. It was established that it represented seven one hundred thousandths of one percent of the business done there. And what this process was, it was, it was very simple. If you went in, for example, to a, to a new customer, say a retailer, and you found he didn't have any gum on his shelf, you said, and you want to get him as a customer and you want to solicit his sales, you took out some gum from your car and you put it on the shelf and you said, look, try this and you know, we'll get some orders from you. Then you made out one of these agency stock transfers and you sent it either to the wholesaler or to the company, which in turn would bill. That's all it was. It represented, it was estimated like 5% of the gum that was carried in the car. For what? Either the wholesaler billed that road to retailer or if it was a large account, Wrigley billed the, uh, the, wholesale, the retailer. But de minimis or not, it was a sale of gum. No, it was not, the, it was not a sale. I, I don't think it was a sale in the normal sense, Your Honor, because... Well, it was not a sale to a consumer, but neither was it a gift to the retailer as an inducement. It was, in fact, a sale to the retailer. I, I, if, if it will help move us along, I will say it's a sale because it was totally de minimis. I, when I said it wasn't a sale, I meant it wasn't the normal sense of a sale where you go and you tell the fellow the price and you haggle with him and then you, uh, he pays you the money and you give him the gum. That isn't how it happened. But I would concede that if this was the way the company did business on a regular basis with all of its people, uh, it could possibly be, uh, go beyond solicitation. But what I'm saying is that when you have a, an activity that is seven one hundred thousandths of one percent of your business, Surely, once you accept the de minimis concept, uh, you would have to say that that's it. Now, well, the next is there a de minimis concept that we should accept here? It certainly isn't reflected in the text of the statute. I don't think most statutes that, uh, that have a de minimis exception to them express language in that way, Justice O'Connor. I would point out that not only has this court recognized a de minimis exception in numerous cases, but Congress itself, in the legislative history of this act, referred to de minimis exceptions. 
Petitioner's own regulations implicitly recognize a de minimis uh, exception. Some well, of the states. Do we have to worry about the word only that appears in the statute? You know, it's interesting, Your Honor. If you look at the statute and take out the word only, I think the statute would mean exactly the same thing. Only, I think, is a matter of emphasis. I would certainly agree with you on that. But if it said no state shall have power to impose a net income tax if the business activities are the solicitation of orders, it would mean exactly the same thing. Um, so I, I take the word only to be a matter of emphasis, but I don't see that it does away with a de minimis uh, exception at all. Some of the amici in this, uh, in this very case that support petitioner agree that there's a de minimis exception. And uh, I would remind you, for example, of the Abbott Labs case, which we cite in our brief. There you had a, uh, a, it was a Robinson-Patman exemption for sales to nonprofit hospitals that, uh, that use the goods for their, for their own use. And the question came up, well, what about uh, purchasers for walk-ins? And, um, and, and you said, well, walk-ins wouldn't be for the hospital's use. And then somebody said, yeah, but what about emergencies where the walk-ins are connected with the hospital? And you said, well, that's de minimis. Now, you carve that right out of the statute. So I don't think there can be any, uh, any question that there has to be a de minimis exception because, look, you're dealing with companies large and small here. And to say that the taxing authority can kind of peek around the corner and find in an exigent circumstance some exception during the course of an entire tax year where somebody went a bit too far. And that brings me to the warehouse situation. Before you get to the warehouse, on what are you, what, what is the relationship that renders something de minimis or not? You, you, you gave a very tiny percentage of Wrigley's total sales? In, in the Wisconsin. No, only in Wisconsin. Of their total sales in, in Wisconsin. Yes. I think that's, that's the way to decide. Yes. And I think it relates either to, can relate either to the size of the sales or to kind of an, a minor exception to your normal practice. And if I can move logically then to the, to the warehouse situation. But may I just interrupt you? You say sure. minor ex- exception to the normal practice, but we're talking about a normal practice. Aren't we? They're, they're replacing the stale gum and, and doing this delivery and having this billing you described to it? Well, there's a big, a big difference between replacement of stale gum and the agency stock. Well, aren't they both normal practices? Well, the agency stock is a normal practice, but it's de minimis because it constitutes such a tiny percentage of what we do. Uh, replacement of stale gum is as inextricably bound up in solicitation as anything you can possibly conceive. Do they pay, do they, does the retailer pay for the, the fresh gum that's used to replace no, the stale gum? No, no, he's already paid for it. You see, the sale has been made, the shipment has been made, it's on his shelf, the salesman goes in and he finds it's over six or eight months old, and he says, you know, this is, this is out of date. Now, why does he do that? Because he knows that if that salesman gets caught with stale gum and his customers tell him, we'll never get another order. It, 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 a salesman will tell you that there's nothing more inextricably bound up in solicitation than replacing stale gum. He's not going to get any orders unless he This is that. gum that has not gone stale on the retailer's shelf. It is, yes. It is gum that is stale when delivered to the retailer. No, no, no. It would normally have gone stale on his shelf, Your Honor. I, I hope we don't deliver stale gum. Well, but, and he doesn't, he doesn't pay for this new gum? No. It's, it's exchanged free. He's not charged for it. So he only pays for the gum that, uh, that, he, that he either he sells got, or that stays perpetually fresh? If he... <laughs> <laughs> It's not in the contract, but that's what we do as part of our solicitation. 
Because if we, we put packs on his shelf and then a customer comes in and says, you know, that stuff I chewed the other day was hard as a board, he's not going to put any more orders with us. No, but it wasn't gum. Suppose it's a very expensive uh, uh, piece of machinery. And all you do, uh, the only thing you do besides solicitation, and you're going to claim this solicitation, is that you service that engine. He calls, he calls you up and says, this engine won't ru isn't running. Uh, and so you rush out there, you have a mechanic or the same salesman, he's a service man, and he goes out and services the engine. That's part of his regular duties. Why? He'll never get another order from that company if he doesn't service that engine. Now, now do you, is that in the same category? Your Honor, I think you make a, a very good point, and that is what you look to... What point was I making? The, <laughs> <laughs> the fact I was that, asking a question. I was, <laughs> the fact that there are some duties that can go beyond solicitation depending upon what is customary in the industry. If, if you said technical people who may go out, you, you said two things. You said, first of all, technical people, and secondly, you said salesmen. If they're technical people, they're not salesmen, and they're not soliciting. And you look at what a salesman ordinarily does within say the, the industry. Say the salesman is a qualified uh, technician, and he, part of his duties is regularly answering customers who, whose engines won't run. Yeah. I think, Your Honor, that you'd look at what was customary in the industry. Well, say it is customary in the industry. Well, if it's customary in the industry, and in fact he's doing most of his time selling, and as he also spends a portion of his time doing something which he thinks he has to do in order to get the next order, then I would say that it's covered here. It's inextricably bound up in solicitation. But if he's primarily a repairman, um, and we use in our brief the example of the 60-ton generator, if somebody's going to go out and fix that, that's not a solicitation of orders. Uh, if, if, I, if I could move then to the warehouse, um, because something has, has been made of that. I mentioned a few minutes ago the exigencies of, of a given situation, and surely that was this one. What happened was somebody was fired, and we were stuck with his the gum that he had in his car, and so it was temporarily put into to a warehouse. But then the next fellow who came along had an apartment. He couldn't get it in his uh, apartment. Apparently, I don't know whether they wouldn't allow it in or he didn't have room or what. So they. It was his wife. <laughs> I, I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> Um, but uh, so they kept the warehouse on for the period uh, when he was aboard because they didn't have any place else to put it. Now, that is not the kind of warehouse that was referred to in the legislative history. The Congress didn't want you to have a plant or a sales office or a warehouse. This was an, an exigent circumstance uh, demanded by the, because you couldn't leave stuff out on the street. Um, and, and that, again, was a de minimis situation under the view of the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and I would suggest to you fully supported here. Are there any cases that you rely on for the proposition that there's a de minimis exception in this kind of tax situation? Well, I don't have a tax case for you, but I gave the example, Your Honor, of the Abbott Labs case where you did carve a diminishment de minimis exception right out of the statute itself. Yeah, but the argument is that you have different presumptions at play when it's a tax case and when it is restricting the state's otherwise existent jurisdiction to tax. 
Your Honor, I think you have to look, if I may suggest it, at what Congress really had in mind with this statute, because I don't think you give it the most conceivably restrictive interpretation that you possibly could. Congress here was worried about the fact that you have over 6,000 taxing jurisdictions. They have all kinds of different bases and rates and timing and all the rest of it, and compliance with this kind of uh, local taxation was so onerous that in some cases it was pointed out that the cost of compliance was more than the tax. (laughs) So that was number one that they were worried about. Number two, they were worried about the possibility of double taxation. In the situation here, Illinois would continue to tax and Wisconsin taxes and you've got double taxation. Because of that, this statute was overwhelmingly uh, passed. The House passed at 359 to 31. The Senate did it on House vote. It's been in effect for 30 years and more since 1959. Congress has had at least one complete report on it, the so-called Willis Report in 1962, where they essentially approved of how it was being carried out. Well, there's a wide variety. Is there not among the states as to what exemptions they say are covered and what aren't? The language in some of the decisions is widely varying, Your Honor, but I would suggest to you, I, I do not, I think I can honestly say I do not know of a single state decision that I would disagree with the result in, because in, the, in every one of those cases, they were doing something which we would concede is beyond solicitation. So, uh, although the language is... You concede it's all or nothing? Uh, in answer to Justice Stevens' question, it was, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure what the answer to that is. It has not been raised. I can assure right. you that if I go back and lose this case, I will argue that it's not all or nothing. But, but what the result would be, uh, Your Honor, I... I and have you agree. covered all the four things that... Let's see. I have covered um, the agency stock. I haven't covered uh, personnel or home offices. But, but you've, you've covered the stale gum. Replacement of stale and the warehouse. And the warehouse. Yes. All right. Shall I touch briefly then on... Yes, the- one other question about the stale. What did your figure of seven one hundred thousandths of one percent pay into all of these activities or the smallest of the group? It, it covered some $600 worth of sales uh, divided into the total sales in the state. I, I understand, but that's just the agency stock. That didn't, yes. that didn't include, for example, replacing the stale gum. No, no. And the agency how stock... How big a percentage is, is that? Pardon me? You know how big a percentage that is? No, but that, that was... The, the salesman testified that it was 85% of the stock that they kept on hand. And, they, uh, and the 10% was uh, samples, and then the 5% was the agency stock. 85% is used to replace stale, stale yeah. gum. So that ought to give you some, some idea of it. Would the case be different if instead of replacing stale gum, you bought it back? I think if you make an actual sales as a... I'm not sale. I'm saying I'm, if you bought from the retailer his stale inventory, you paid him for it, and then sold him, would that be a different case? You mean you buy back what you sold him? Well, because you don't want him to sell that. He's got some merchandise that you think is going to hurt the goodwill of your company. Oh, I see. In other words, you, you buy, the salesman on the spot buys back the, uh, the I think that could well go beyond the, uh, the stale well, what's your, you don't, what do you do with the stale gum you take off the shelf? Uh, Throw it in a wastebasket? No. The, it's really a trade, isn't it? Well, well, first of all. You take it and you replace it. That's a trade. Back during this period, most of it was packaged and sent back to Chicago. So it's a little a trade. bit of it. It's a trade. A little bit of it was thrown so instead into of money, uh, local you, uh, 
uh, you give them new gum. So it's, it's an exchange. Sort of a sale, yeah. It's an exchange. Sort of a sale. He's built for it. I thought he was built for it. No, not for the stale gum. No, no. Let's distinguish now between the agency stock, which is a tiny little percentage, and the replacement of stale gum, which is completely free. All right. Pretty much. Why do they send it back to Chicago? Uh, can't they dump it in the Wisconsin landfill? Your Honor, the reason it's sent back to Chicago is that in those days it could become part of new gum. It could become a base for for new gum. That's no longer done. Recycle. <laughs> when you chew gum, you're chewing sale gum too. <laughs> well, they treat it. Um, if I can deal with the personnel uh, uh, matter that he mentioned. Uh, personnel decisions were made in Chicago. Uh, the final decisions were all made in Illinois. The local man, of course, had to do some things and make recommendations, but it's interesting that there are instances in the record where the local man made recommendations about raises, for example, which were turned down by Chicago. In one instance where they were going to fire someone, the regional manager who was in Wisconsin got permission ahead of time. He said, if the facts prove true, do I have permission to fire him? And he said yes, and he fired him. So the personnel decisions, I think, are well taken care of. They're outside the state. Insofar as the home offices, which I believe is the last thing that General Creon mentioned is concerned, we did not have a sales office. There was no evidence whatever that Wrigley uh, knew uh, about the fact that this, this gum was kept in the home. It didn't pay for it. Uh, the, the use was strictly incidental. Um, you had a file cabinet here for your normal reports, or you used the kitchen table or a part of the basement. Um, you had one or two meetings a year of the sales personnel, and in one case they were sent, uh, they were in the, the home. Uh, they were usually in a hotel, but the sales meetings were completely taken up with solicitation. That is, how are we going to sell uh, more gum. And even the manager, the regional manager who was, with, who was in Wisconsin, his chief job was solicitation. He spent from 80 to 95 percent of his time in soliciting orders. I think that's all that the, um, that, um, uh, that my opponent has mentioned, but I do want to talk about the pre-sale, post-sale test for just a moment. <clears throat> if you look on page two of his reply brief, something that I had not noticed before in his main brief. He says that you don't have to have a sale in order for you to be covered under the pre-sale, post-sale test. Now, if that's true, I, it seems to me we fit his test. If you don't have to have a sale, and all you have to do is the activities that would lead up to a sale, or if you have a sale, then you keep going to try to get the next sale, well, I think we meet the pre-sale, post-sale test. Uh, or to put it another way, I don't think the so-called pre-sale, post-sale test makes, it, it makes any sense. Um, because certainly in the gum in industry, and, and Justice Black, when you put your finger on it, it was that you not only have a, a short uh, shelf life, uh, you, but you have, you know, 95% of it um, is, um, is impulse buying. 95% is impulse buying. And so you, when you put those two together, uh, what you have here is activity that is ongoing in every sense. The gum industry is different from that 60-ton generator that I mentioned to you. Mr. Pretty, you go ahead. Uh, that's one of the things that troubles me. I, I, I can't believe that Congress uh, 
enacted a statute that would be uh, almost impossible of application. And, and, and I'm looking for a, um, a criterion that, that, that would be uh, readily applicable. And, and maybe the, uh, the categorical uh, solicitation test is, is easier than what you're proposing. Uh, uh, the state authorities under your test would really have to know each individual industry. Uh, if, if, if servicing normally goes along with solicitation for this industry, it's okay. If it doesn't normally go along with solicitation for that industry, although it does for another one, then it's not okay. Uh, that, that makes life very complicated. Why should we buy into that kind of difficulty? Your Honor, I don't think it is at all. I think it, it I, first of all, you're looking for a criteria. I would say that Business activities, and don't forget, I go back to that. It's not just solicitation. It's the business activities that are solicitation. The business activities that are covered are those which are directed toward achieving an immediate or a future sale and which is normally done by a salesman or a supervising, supervising salesman in that industry. Now, that is no different than the kinds of determinations that have to be made all the time based on custom and usage in an industry in tax matters. For example, uh, Section 482 of the Internal Revenue Code, where a company is lending money to a foreign sub, says you can charge the interest rate that's customary in the industry. And the IRS... But it uh, says that. I mean, it goes to the trouble of saying that. And this, this doesn't say, you know, what's, what's considered solicitation in the industry. It says solicitation, as though that's, uh, that's something that everybody understands, and it's the same everywhere. Well, don't we have to be practical about this, Your Honor, and I'm try to, to make sense out of what Congress did? They, they obviously intended something by this statute, and I think what they intended was that whatever you normally do for, to solicit orders is what is covered, and what salesmen do not ordinarily do is not covered, absent of the minimum exception. Well, that, that would make me think that, that maybe carrying, uh, carrying your samples around in the taxi cab, uh, yes, is, uh, is part of solicitation, but I don't know why replacing stale gum is. Uh, well, I can only tell you that the evidence in this case, Your Honor, is that there is nothing more inextricably bound up in a salesman's mind and in common usage and practice than replacing stale gum, because you're not, you're not, look, yes, if you go to a retail store and you sell him $10 worth of gum, that's just not going to do anything for you. No, but, but if he's I, a regular... May, may I interrupt you right sure. there? I take it a regular practice of delivering gum by the salesman would, would not constitute solicitation. And I would, I, I, the problem I have with your example is I wouldn't, it would fit perfectly if he took away the stale gum and then said, I'll give you a free order and have the wholesaler ship it into you. So that you, but then, but he is doing the delivering himself of a, of a, on a regular basis of a portion of the inventory sold by the retail. And that's the question I well, me. Well, Your Honor, I would submit to you that it, it is not delivery, that's it, that it's an exchange. And what the statute contemplates is a delivery order sent for approval outside the state. And that's not this. That order has been sent from outside the state, it's in the store. That has been completed. No, what's in the store is the gum that's being exchanged. The stuff he's delivered hasn't been ordered. You, 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 it would be, see, I mean, I'm saying it would be a quite different case if the replacement gum were shipped by the wholesaler free. But he just takes away the old, taking away the old gum, no problem. But delivering the new gum, is, is that, that's what troubles me. Well, it's funny. I, I don't look at it that way because I don't think that's what the statute is talking about when it means delivery. I think this is a simple exchange for gum which has been delivered, and he's going to get further deliveries in the future. 
And all he's doing is he's taking a gum, which is really no longer what the man bargained for, what he paid for, and just saying, we'll give you what you originally paid for and what was originally delivered to you. Um, if there are no further questions, uh, we would strongly urge that the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which has I think Justice Blackman pointed out was a unanimous view in which ordinarily you would not expect from the taxing state uh, be affirmed in this case. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Prettyman. Uh, Mr. Curran, you have two minutes remaining. On the de minimis exemption, the word only is what gives the statute its character of protecting small business. If you uh, make $600 of sales, uh, and you say that's de minimis, a small business who comes into the state and makes that same $600 of sales, and it's their total sales, loses out under the statute. Uh, that's totally at odds with the statutory purpose of protecting small business. The de minimis exemption also hasn't been defined in I, any way. I don't know I understand that, are you? Because a small business can make de minimis mistakes, too, and be protected. I mean, a small business isn't one that has only $600 of sales. That could have a couple hundred thousand and still be a small business. Well, uh, even if uh, what I'm saying is, if there's a de minimis, de minimis exception, the small business will get the benefit of it as much as the big business. But how do you determine what the de minimis exemption is? I mean, they they have no well, definition. That's another problem. But I do, I just don't buy your argument that it's loaded one way or another based on the size of the company. Um, At least I don't I don't understand it. But I mean, a small business couldn't claim a de minimis, minimis exemption if all of its six hundred dollars of sales uh, involved direct delivery. You know, I, I, uh, uh, it seems to me that uh, that removes the character of the statute of protecting small business. Also, the, the statute was uh, designed to protect uh, those corporations that couldn't afford uh, attorneys and accountants uh, to examine the tax laws of other states. I, I think there's a certain irony in this case, if you just look at the front of Wrigley's brief, uh, that they're claiming the benefit of the statute uh, in light of the uh, uh, great number of able counsel that they're able to employ. Um, uh, That's because you're such a worthy opponent. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Kerr. And the case is submitted.